0: Greg, I'm a teacher here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's good to be sharing this time with all of you on this Super Bowl Sunday. Hey, yeah, who cares? You know, like, Does anyone in this auditorium have a horse in that race? I, I don't think so. But all the wisdom out there says, uh, which I, you know, all the wisdom I'm preaching, which I, of course, pay meticulous attention to, uh, says that uh, you're supposed to use this opportunity to you know, weave uh, football analogies into your message. And... Um, See, the trouble is that, that uh, I, I become a fan of the Vikings if they make the playoffs, uh, but I really don't get on board unless they're in the Super Bowl. Uh, so I haven't been really interested for quite a while. It's just a, not on my radar screen. So the best I could come up with was, you know, you can't deflate Jesus, praise God. You uh, can never get deflated. You'll always score a touchdown with Jesus. Hallelujah. No. Forget the football analogies. This is not going to happen. Not going to happen. So we're uh, ending this series here on women uh, on the outside. How would you football into that, anyways? It's like that wouldn't work. Um, and uh, I've got a lot of good feedback on this. I think it's 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 really been cool to take this perspective uh, on Jesus. Uh, and so we're going to end this by looking at uh, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. It's uh, the woman at the well that met Jesus in John chapter four, the Samaritan woman. And it's just, it's just a rich text, it's got a lot to teach us. So we're going to be reading 26 verses, and we're titling this Through Samaria, because it's about Jesus going through Samaria. And um, uh, it's, it's, like I said, very rich. I'm going to read the it's 26 verses, so it's going to take a little time here, and I'll make comments in between just to kind of give a little bit of background uh, to what's going on here, and then we'll get into the meat of the message. So John chapter 4, start with verse 4. John chapter 4, start with verse 4. There, there you are. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Pause for a moment. What you need to know about the historical context to understand this this narrative is that there's a lot of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Um, The Samaritans were descendants of the Jews way back when, but at some point they they got separated from them as they were taken into exile, and they intermarried with the Gentiles. And so the Jews looked upon them as being half-breeds, Sellouts. Um, Orthodox Jews weren't supposed to marry any, anyone other than Jews. And so there's a lot of animosity here. Not only that, but there was um, uh, some theological differences. As these two kind of parted company, uh, 800 years earlier, they, they developed different theologies. And so the Samaritans, they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired, the Pentateuch. And they thought after that time, Israel... Uh, which was the, the southern kingdom, that they went into apostasy, heresy, and that God abandoned them. And so the Samaritans thought they were the true heirs of the Old Testament faith. And that those folks down in Jerusalem, those are the heretics. Well, the Jews in, in Jerusalem thought that uh, the Samaritans were heretics. So there's a lot of nastiness going on here. Uh, Most Jews saw the Samaritans as being unclean uh, from birth, and everything they touched was unclean, so you couldn't touch it. Even the land, many of them thought the land was unclean, and so they wouldn't walk through Samaria at all. They they thought that contaminated you. They just had a lot of disdain for these these folks. One of the main theological differences you need to know about, because it's going to come up here in the narrative, is that uh, the Samaritans thought that the holy place where God dwelt was Mount Gerizim. They still think that, and they still have Samaritans over in Samaria now. And, and they, they worship at Mount Gerizim. They don't worship the mountain, but that's considered the holy place. Whereas uh, the Israelites, they regarded Jerusalem and the temple to be the place where God dwells. So they have these two different centers of their faith. And then this will come out here in a little bit. And then it says, "Well, and the, the question that just kind of lodges in your brain is, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, or Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, back there in Genesis. God's, uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon, which is in the heat of the day. And this is a very hot climate, and that will come up here a little bit too. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples John notes, had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Do, how can you ask me for a drink? And then John explains, in case you didn't know, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. So, here's the thing. This lady is, is understandably surprised. First of all, there's a man talking to a woman who's not his wife, and that, there's a rule about that. Secondly, He's a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. That doesn't happen. These two groups don't talk together. But the most surprising part of this narrative, the thing that would most shock her, is that he wanted to, her, her to give him a drink, which meant he was going to drink out of her cup. Uh, and for a Jew to touch anything that a Samaritan touched, well, there, that was a taboo. let alone drink out of the same cup that a Samaritan drank out of. And so this woman is like, really surprised by this. But it's just like Jesus, isn't it? He, to to, to totally ignore social and religious taboos that divide people. He just lives in revolt of those things, and so he just plows forward. Then Jesus said to her, if you knew, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you a miracle worker? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water from this well is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I have to give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. In other words, you drink of this water, you're going to have your own well inside of you, and it's bottomless. The woman said to him, Sir, by all means, give me this water so I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming uh, back here to draw water. Uh, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. You find this in John 7, where he says, Whoever believes in him receives the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is this bottomless well of, of eternal life. And it wells up inside of us and flows out of us. That's life in the kingdom. We have this precious gift called the Holy Spirit. It's living water. It quenches the thirst of the soul. But the lady clearly isn't getting it. She's taking him literally, and so when he says, "You know, I, I, if you were to ask me, I'd give you a living water," she says, well, how's that possible? You don't even have a cup. That's why you asked me for my cup, and, and you don't have anything to draw from. And the well well is very deep. How, how are you going to do this?" She's just not tracking with him. She's taking it literally. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and then he told her, "Okay, tell you what. Oh, I suspect she's mocking. I don't know for sure, but." When she says, oh, by, sir, give me this living water that I'll never thirst again, because I'm getting tired of coming back to this well, I I suspect she's thinking he's cuckoo. Like, oh, yeah, right, right. right. Sure, give it to him if you got it. But I don't think she thinks it's impossible. So anyways, uh, he, he says, okay, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. (laughs) There's a little tongue in cheek going on here. You are honest, uh, so far as it goes. So, uh, Jesus is humorously bringing out something about her past and her present because he's going to elicit something from her. And we'll see what this is a little bit later on. The woman says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. (laughs) How did you know that about me? Uh, You must be a prophet. So, as most of us would do, if we found a prophet who knew everything about us, we changed change the topic very quickly. So she says, our ancestors, let's talk about the mountain issue. <laughs> Enough about me, all right. Let's talk about the mountains. So, uh, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that uh, the place where we're supposed to worship is Jerusalem. So, okay, you're a prophet, but let's uh, talk about our theological differences. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans... Worship what you don't know, but we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus is here weighing in a little bit on this theological issue. And he's siding with the Israelites, um, and, and he's saying that salvation comes from the Jews that because he is the Savior and he is Jewish, so he comes out of, uh, out of Israel. And he's here saying you Samaritans got off track, uh, and the whole Old Testament's inspired, not just the first five books. And, you know, but, so he's, he's weighing in on that, but he's now going to say it doesn't make any difference. It's irrelevant. He says, yet a time, a time is coming, and in fact, it now, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, not on this mountain or that temple or whatever, but in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus weighs in on the theology, but he says, you know, it's irrelevant. Because now that the Savior is here, now that I'm here, uh, people are going to worship God in the spirit and in truth. And to worship God in the spirit and in truth means you understand that he's not localizable in one temple or on this mountain. Or he's not privy to one group as opposed to another. To worship him in truth is to know that he's the God of all people and he's the God of all places. Spirit and truth. And so it will render this debate that's been going on for hundreds of years irrelevant. It's moot. God is spirit. He's everywhere and he's for all. Now, I... I, this is kind of a little excursion, but it's a topic I've been thinking about for eight years, and so I'm going to share a little bit here with you. Just think about this. When he says, Worship him, well, worship him in spirit and in truth, in truth. He's adding that as a new thing. Okay, now we're going to finally worship him in truth, which means that the whole idea that God could be localized in a temple and that God was privy to a certain group, kind of a parochial deity, there's something untrue about that. He's the God of all people and of all places, and therefore any any attempt to try to make him about one people and about one place conceals that truth, and so to that degree it's untrue. And yet this is kind of how the Old Testament tends to think about God, isn't it? And, And so what that's revealing, what Jesus reveals about God, revealing the true character and nature of God, is it's showing that when they understood God to be in a particular place and belonging uniquely to a particular people as opposed to other people, it's not reflecting God's actual character and will. It's reflecting God's willingness to accommodate their, what they think is God's character and will. This is where people are at, and God's willing to always come down and meet people where they're at. And so as we read much of that stuff in the Old Testament, what we need to see is a God who is humbly stooping to relate to these people. But we've got to be careful about just assuming that the way that they are thinking about God is the way that God actually is, because it's only with the coming of Jesus that we worship God in, in full spirit and in full truth. Just chew on that for a little bit. Uh, that was for free, no additional charge. And now we'll move on. Um, so yes, uh, they will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now where am I in this thing? Okay, then, then he says, um, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything uh, to us. So here the lady isn't following what Jesus is saying. Yeah, that da da, 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 So she's like, whatever, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. And Jesus says, lady, you're talking to him. Uh, hello, the woman you're talking to, I am he. So he identifies himself. And that does explain everything. Uh, explains how he knows that this lady's had five husbands, is now living with a guy who's not her husband, and explains how he can offer this living water. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to this woman, a Samaritan woman. But no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? They were stunned into silence. Which is just at all surprising. Then, look at this, leaving the jar, her water jar. She didn't even fill it. The woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the whole town came out and, and, and met Jesus. And a little bit later on, it says that many of them believed and they asked him to stay for two more days, which Jesus did. Stay there for two more days. This is a rich passage. We, we, we could uh, take this in a lot of directions, but for this morning there's, there's two points I'm going to make out of this. And really, it's like two different sermons. They're both pretty good, so hang with me on this. Uh, two, two different sermons. Sermon number one. to notice the gracious way that Jesus interacts with this woman. It's just beautiful. He gets his word of knowledge about her. That she's had five husbands. Kind of humorously draws it out of her. Go get your husband. He's setting her up. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Well, that's true. You've had five, and the person you're with now is not your husband. Now, that would raise eyebrows in just about every culture throughout history, but in first-century Jewish culture and Samaritan culture... And by the way, the Samaritans were just as strict ethically and in terms of their orthodoxy as, as the, the Jews were. Um, in that culture, this would have been incredibly scandalous. I in fact, I, I have never found anything, a person, anything like this in, in the ancient literature. A person married five times and then living with somebody who's not her husband... When, when the culture is so much against it, it, it it's, it's shocking. I mean, to be divorced once was shocking. To be divorced five times, that was just unheard of. Now, what you need to know is that in, in this culture, women couldn't divorce the men. The, only the men could divorce the women. It's a sexist culture. The only women who could divorce, uh, in, initiate a divorce, um, in the ancient world was very wealthy Gentile women. But among Jews and Samaritans, it, it couldn't happen. And when they were divorced, when a woman was put out, is how they would put it, the guy would just kick her out, um, it always fell on the woman. It's a sexist culture. She was blamed for it. The assumption is you couldn't even please a man. You, couldn't, you, you weren't a good, good wife. There's something defective with you, something wrong with you. It was a stigma on her. Not only was it a stigma on her, but it tainted her. Um, it, it, the minute you were divorced, the pool of people you could marry shrunk considerably, because most decent, high, upright, Orthodox Jewish guys and Samaritan guys, they'd only marry a virgin. And so the pool of people you could draw from just got smaller and kind of went down a couple notches, because the kind of guys who are going to marry you are not going to be the upright you know, types. Um, and so this lady, to be divorced five times, well, there'd be a, a perception that she must really be a terrible, terrible lady who, who, who burns up five husbands. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. And now, if she's living with a guy out of wedlock, that was you know, of itself scandalous, and so she'd be considered loose on top of this. Very defective and very loose. In fact, the fact that she could even get a second husband and then a third and then a fourth and a fifth. Um, why do guys keep on wanting to marry her? She must have had something going for her. Uh, you know, she's got so much going against her, something had to overcome that for, for these guys. And it either was that she was very rich, which wouldn't be the case, were tend to be very, very poor, or she was really hot. <laughs> so I suspect she was a really good-looking gal, and so she could keep getting married, even though she kept on getting unmarried. All right. Uh, this, this kind of explains why she's at the well at noon and why she's alone. Um, the way that you would do it in the ancient world, women hardly ever traveled by themselves. Among other things, it was dangerous. They would always travel in packs, and, and what villages would typically do is in the morning when the first duties of the women was to take their water jars and go out to the well and gather the day's water, and they would do it first thing in the morning because it's a very hot region, and, and so you, you, it's less work and less sweat to do it in the morning, and the water's going to be cooler. Here this lady is alone, not with a group, and she's at, there at noon when no one else is going to be there because this is the hottest time of the day. What that tells us is that this lady was ostracized, which isn't surprising. With this kind of past and living with a guy in the present, um, decent women wouldn't be wanting to hang out with her. She wouldn't have any friends. She was rejected by this, this town. She's here alone. So then Jesus calls out this past and this present I know you, I know everything about you. But notice this despite what a scandal that would be in this culture, Jesus doesn't have a hint of condemnation, not a hint. He doesn't call her out and say, shame on you, you know, wicked woman, sinner, we did nothing. He just calls it out. And then when she wants to change the subject, he goes with it. He just, it, just, it just, it's just there. But he does it because he wants to show her that he is the Messiah. And he does it because he, he, he's saying to her, lady, I know everything about you. And I knew that when I offered you that water. That offer's still on the table. Uh, lady, I know everything about you. And it doesn't affect, in the least, my desire to help you. I know everything about you. Um, and and what the society thinks about you. But I want you to know that this doesn't at all affect my love for you, my concern for you, my desire to quench your thirst. I know everything about you, which means I also know about your pain, and I know about your rejection, and how you have been judged, and how you've been, been hurt. I know everything about you, including the thirst that drives you. This is what Jesus is getting at. He calls it out not to judge her, but to help her by showing his concern for her and wanting to get to that... That thirst that's in the core of her being. What Jesus knows and what we need to always remember is that everything that this woman ever did was driven by the same thirst that drives everybody. But whatever else happened with those five marriages and her decision to live with this guy, she's driven by a thirst. And everybody's driven by a thirst. As Bruce Springsteen said, everyone's got a hungry heart. Or was it John Mellicamp? One of the two. Uh, Everyone's got a hungry heart. Everyone's got a thirst in the core of their being. And, And whatever we do, this is what drives the world. We do it to try to meet that need. The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all driven by this thirst. Everyone's thirsty for life, thirsty for the sense of worth and value and significance and, and, and being loved and having some security. Everyone's thirsty for that. We're always trying to get it. Now, we've got jaded ways of going about it, jaded ways of identifying our thirst, jaded, jaded means of, of trying to quench that thirst. We drink, we drink false, poisonous water, but we're doing it with this intention of meeting this need. And see, Jesus, as he's relating to this woman, he looks past the behavior. Because the behavior is only a symptom. It's always only a symptom. What's behind the symptom is the thirst that is driving the behavior. He sees past the behavior, the past that she's had, the present that she's in, and he sees the thirst, and that's what he wants to address. This is why he doesn't look at her with judgment eyes. He looks at her with compassion. Religion, what religion does to the degree that we're conditioned by religion or some other ethical system, we see the behavior and we judge the behavior. We rate the behavior good, bad, whatever, righteous, unrighteous, holy, unholy, and, and we size up. That's what you see when you look at behavior. But Jesus looks at her not with the, through the eyes of religion, but through the eyes of love. And he sees into her soul and speaks into that. And he has compassion. And this is, folks, for followers of Jesus, this is how we are called to look at all other people. Amen? Uh, it's not about the behavior. However bad the behavior is, and there's a lot of bad behavior out there, heinous behavior, evil behavior. It is evil. And the rest of the world's going to judge that. And society sometimes has to do things about that. But we're to be this one peculiar group of people that can have compassionate eyes towards everybody because we know God has compassionate eyes towards us. This is the way we're supposed to look at folks, looking into their soul. This is why I think this woman got, was so moved by him, why, why there's this joy. Finally, someone saw past the behavior and, and spoke into her soul, looked at her, and didn't judge her, knew everything about her, but didn't condemn her. That's what made this good news. So Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah. And this is where the coin drops in the slot. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And um, so she all of a sudden realizes all, she's been talking to this Messiah, or at least she thinks it might be the Messiah. And he knows everything about her, but he didn't condemn her, unlike everybody else. He knows everything about her, but he didn't run away, like everybody else. He knows everything about her, but he didn't bring judgment on her. He knows everything about her, but he still cared about her. He knew everything about her, and yet he's still offering her this living water. And that got through to a a, a, a depth in this woman that I don't think anyone's gotten through to since she was a kid. She's only known judgment and rejection. Now there's a person who's got a love for her that's bigger than the judgment on her behavior. That's the first. And it touches her deeply to the point where she leaves the jar right there, and she runs back to the town to announce this guy. Now think about this. This is the same town that ostracized her. Same time they rejected her and judges her, and now she wants to tell them about this guy that she met who knew everything about her. Jesus can have that effect on people. You hang out with him for a little bit, and you start loving people who reject you. Uh, He just has this way of getting inside of us and changes our love. So she runs back with joy. Now, she's an evangelist for Jesus. But notice this. Here's the draw. She's saying with joy, I met a guy who knew everything about me. Now, the draw would be on the one hand, the people would be interested in how this guy knew this. He'd be clairvoyant. That'd make him curious. But I think the real draw is this how is that possibly good news? Because <laughs> they know everything she did. And they haven't made her joyful, they've made her miserable. They've made her isolated and lonely. They've only inflicted pain. Now she comes back and she's proclaiming with joy that she met a guy who knew everything she did. And they've got to be wondering how is that good news? That's why I think the main reason they went out to see this guy. What is it that could make this possibly be good news? And many believed in him, and he ends up staying with them a a few more days. See, here's the thing. I'm sure, I'm certain that some folks in this auditorium, and certainly some listening through podcasts, uh, can identify with this woman. In fact, we all should be able to identify with this woman, because there's not a person listening to me right now who is any, why not one iota better than this woman, But in terms of how society and religion judges depth of sin, maybe you you, you more readily, more explicitly identify with her. Maybe you've burned through five spouses. Could be. You have five husbands or five wives. Maybe you have blew apart every marriage you've been in because of your infidelity. Maybe you've got all sorts of perversions inside of you. Maybe, maybe you cheat a lot or steal a lot. You, you've hurt everyone that, that you love. Maybe you're addicted to some substance and, and, and uh, you're destroying yourself with that and you've, you've hurt everyone you love. And You do terrible things uh, to support that habit. I don't know what variety of sin you have, but you can identify with this woman. You're one of the super judged in society. And, and as you think about a God who knows everything about you, God knows every single sin in perfect detail. As you think about that, it could very well be, in fact, it's more likely than not, that you see a sneering God, a God who knows everything about you, and he's got an accusatory finger pointing at you. A God who knows everything about you, and he's full of rage. A God who knows everything about you, and he's condemning you. And what you need to know is that if that's kind of how you're thinking about God, that would be true if God was a Pharisee or if God was a religious preacher or a judger. See, here's the thing. If that lady, if that lady had, had met a Pharisee instead of Jesus at that well, a Pharisee who knew everything about her, it would not have been good news. That Pharisee would have slimed her up and down. Or if, if, if that lady would have met a lot of preachers today, uh, it wouldn't have been good news. Not if they knew everything about her. No, they would rail on her and put her up as an example of, of, of what's wrong with the world and carry picket signs and maybe pass laws against her. But they wouldn't have had a loving conversation that gave her joy. Uh, but see, she didn't meet a Pharisee or, or a religious preacher. She met Jesus, and that brought her joy. Now, knowing everything about her it was good news, not bad news. And so, yeah, if you're seeing a sneering, accusatory, full of rage, condemning kind of a God, that would be true if, if, if God was a Pharisee or, or a religious preacher. But see, God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is exactly what God looks like. And so what you need to know is that God right now is looking at you not with a sneer, not with a pointing finger. God's looking at you the way he looked at Jesus. Uh, and and he, as I said last week, he doesn't look at you through the categories of religion or ethics. Uh, he's out there evaluating good, bad, holy, unholy, righteous, unrighteous, insider, outsider. He's seeing you. The way Jesus saw this woman, he sees you. a uh, uh, Being he created in his image who has infinite worth, one that Jesus died for. And what he's concerned with, the only thing he's concerned with is, is, is giving you living water. He, he knows that you've been driven by a thirst. You've maybe been going about trying to meet that thirst, all, that thirst in all the wrong ways. All these destructive ways causing so much pain. Uh, but he wants to meet that thirst that's his only concern for you. And see, you'll know, you'll know that you're envisioning God the right way if the fact that he knows everything about you stops being bad news and it starts being good news. Now, you, now you're relating to the right God. Uh, and, and it makes you want to be full of joy because you realize that he loves you despite all of his knowledge of your sin. And he wants to give you living water despite all of the knowledge of your sin. And, 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 and you want to go tell people about that. Now you're thinking of the true God. And see, the reality is that, that if you'll just surrender to this true God, if you'll surrender to the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, He'll give you that living water. And you'll know that you're starting to enter into a relationship with Him because that thirst starts to get quenched. That thirst that's been driving you, maybe you're not even aware of it, but that thirst that's been driving you starts to get quenched. And as that thirst gets quenched, you see, you stop. You no longer need to be trying to get a quest by all the inappropriate things you've been doing. You no longer need to try to do things to try to get people to notice you and to like you and to approve of you, whatever, because you're getting that living water. Now the life is inside of you. As it starts to well up inside of you, as it starts to overflow in you, you find that things that you used to love, you just don't love anymore. And the things that you didn't love, you start to love a lot. And the things that used to bind you no longer bind you. It changes your priority. It changes your value system. It changes everything. How you look at God, how you look at yourself. Everything changes when you get that living water inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit and He wants to give that to you. Do you never thirst again? People think, oh, I, I just can't, I, I, I just can't, uh, I, I can't do this because I can't even imagine living without this. You know, this is just, I, I've been addicted for too long. I've just been in this bondage for too long. I just, it's just who I am. And so I, I can't change it. But see, he's not asking you to change it. He's asking you to let him change it. <laughs> because that's the only way it's going to get changed. It's the only way it's going to get changed. You, you've been thirsty. You've been thirsty. And when you're thirsty, you do crazy things. You know, we do all sorts of things to try to quench our thirst. But see, the answer, as long as you're thirsty, you can't conceive of giving up that kind of water. It's the only water you got. But let him give you the living water. And you'll find that the water you got ain't good water. It's poison water. And and, and as soon as you start drinking healthy water, man, you want to get rid of it. And now you'll have out of your inner being flowing this this, this, this everlasting life. See, we we, we don't change by our willpower to get the water. We get the water, and that's how we change, because we can't do it by our willpower. He changes us from the inside out. So, if you're listening to this message in this auditorium or through podcasts or any other means, and you're not surrendered to Jesus, maybe you were one time, but you're not now or you never have been, I don't know. But if you're not surrendered, I want to encourage you right now, if this is in your heart, if if this is ringing true, if you know that you're thirsty, just surrender to Him right now. Just surrender to Him. Uh, It's just about turning the reins of your your life over to Him. And you don't have to have a clue what that really means right now. It's just you have the will to do it. Are you willing to follow through on that? Surrender over to Him and then receive that living water. Start drinking from the right well. And the well will be inside of you. If you're thirsty, just surrender to him. In fact, I'm going to pray right now. Um, And uh, if if folks are listening through podcasts, if you're driving a car, you can do this while you're driving a car. Uh, Maybe not if you're doing it on a motorcycle. I don't know. Uh, You might want to stop what you're doing. But you, you decide that. But Father, I pray for every person here who has not surrendered to you. That right now, they would just release the control of their life over to you. And Lord, open up their hearts to start to receive that living water, the Holy Spirit that you put in all who surrender to you. Lord, help them to create in their life a vacuum that you can fill and only you can fill. To start running on different waters. To start having a different energy, a different motivation, a different heart. Lord, well up inside them. Give them the joy of knowing the true God for whom it's good news that we know he knows all of our sins. Because the love is infinitely, infinitely outruns the sin. Yes, Father. And then seal this on their heart. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. If, if you have made that decision here in this auditorium, I want to encourage you after the service to come up here and talk to the prayer teams that are up here. Because what you just signed up for, is, it's not a like one-time magic thing at all. It's a journey. You're, you're now in a relationship. And uh, um, you, you start learning how to, how, to, how to step forward in that. How to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, all right? Amen. Okay, that's sermon number one. Want to hear sermon number two? All right, good. All right, here, here it is. Ask the question, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Why did he have to? The text is emphatic on this. He had to go through Samaria. Most Jews wouldn't go through Samaria, even though it was the shortest way to go from Galilee to Judea or Judea to, to Galilee. Most would go around it because they thought they made him unclean. Why did he have to go? It wasn't for geological reasons, or geographical reasons. Um, And it wasn't because he was in a hurry, because he spent two more days there once they asked him to. There's no hurry here. He's got plenty of time. Why did he have to go through Samaria? And the answer is that it wasn't because of the land or geography. It was a have-to of mission. It was a have-to of mission. Jesus manifested the will and character of God perfectly, And therefore, he had to go against everything that's inconsistent with the will and character of God. That's why he's a revolutionary. He revolted. Everything in society that was contrary to the will and character of God, which is revealed in him, um, is something that you have to revolt against if you're going to manifest the true will and character of God. In fact, that's why we find throughout Jesus' life, if you put him in his cultural context, almost everything Jesus did was countercultural. It was shocking. The way he treated women... See, in that cultural context, it was really unusual. And we find it here in this text as well. And in doing that, he's, he's revolting against the ungodly sexism of his culture. And the way he treats the poor with dignity, he's revolting against the ungodly classism of his culture. And the way he treats those most judged by religion, uh, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, he's revolting against the judgmental, judgmental religion of his culture. Everything Jesus did was in some kind of a revolt, because he's manifesting the true character of God, therefore he has to come against... All that's inconsistent with that. And see, here, what this passage is emphasizing is the way that Jesus revolted against the racism of his culture. He had to do it. Because he's manifesting the will of God, which has got nothing to do with racism. He had to go through Samaria. He had to bring the good news to this woman and to this town. Because to avoid Samaria was contrary to God's will. God's will has always been to tear down walls that divide people and to separate people and judgments that that, that people have on on, on one another. And, And so Jesus, in manifesting the true will of God, he thereby revolts against the racism of his culture in a very explicit and overt way. Now, not only is that something Jesus did with his life, but it's something Jesus did with his death. Jesus died for this. He had to. He had to revolt against the racism of his culture. So here's what it says in Ephesians 2. Listen to this. It's talking about the crucified Christ. And it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier. The the thing is, uh, Jew and Gentile was, from a Jewish perspective, the the paradigmatic division of people groups in in, in humanity. So if you reconcile those two, you've reconciled everything, every other division. Uh, they, They are the paradigm for all divisions. So he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between those two, and therefore between all people groups. His purpose was to create in himself, on the cross, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace between all the people groups in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. When Jesus was crucified, hostility between people groups was crucified. So Jesus died for this. Jesus died to destroy the barriers that divide people. Jesus died to tear down the wall of hostility that divides people. In fact, he died to crucify the hostility between people groups. He died to create one new humanity. And in this one new humanity, there are no judgments of people groups against one another. There are no divisions. There is no hostility. There are no walls. Rather, this one new humanity is characterized by peace between all people, uh, people groups because they're reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to one another. Jesus died for this. And so the half-to that he had in his life is also the half-to he had in his crucifixion. And if it's a half-to that he had in his, his crucifixion, then folks, it's a half-to that we have as his followers. Our call, right, is to manifest all that is true by virtue of what Jesus, who Jesus was, and what he did. Our job is to manifest the same character and will of God that Jesus manifested. And so whatever Jesus died for, our job is to manifest this. Which means, folks, we have to go through Samaria. If we're going to manifest the will of God, manifest what the cross accomplished, we have to go through Samaria. We have got to find ways of cultivating relationships with people that are different from ourselves. We've got to revolt against the barriers, because he did. We've got to revolt against the hostility, because he did. We've got to tear down the walls, because he did. We've got to manifest the one new humanity, because he did. And we're his followers. We have the same have to. It means that this isn't a nice opinion I'm giving here. It's not a quaint suggestion. It's not a, you know, negotiable thing. No, this is a have-to. It's a have-to. Now, the normal of our culture, whatever culture you're in, it feels normal. And it felt normal for Jews to hate Samaritans and Samaritans to hate Jews. You didn't have to choose that. It just happened to you. You're raised in that, right? That's the normal. And we don't really notice the normal. But see, to manifest the kingdom of God is to revolt against the normal insofar as the normal is not God's normal. And while the hostility between Jews and Samaritans was normal for the culture, it wasn't God's normal. And so Jesus has to manifest God's normal, and therefore he has to buck up against that normal, the ungodly normal. So, also in our culture, and that means we have got to be countercultural in ways. It, it's, it's natural, it's normal in our culture, by and large, to say birds of the same feather flock together. This is normal. People are just more comfortable hanging out with people that are like them. It's, it's, it's easier when people, you know, you share the same language and you share the same kind of taste in clothes and taste in food and taste in music and, and you look the same. It's just easier. Birds of a feather flock together. That's just sort of the normal. And folks, that is not God's normal. That is not, in fact, by the kingdom standards, that is absolutely antichrist because it's contrary to what Jesus was all about. Uh, it, it's, it, 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 it's, yes, it's more comfortable Absolutely. But, folks, we aren't called to get comfortable. We are called to be faithful, which requires us to sometimes get uncomfortable. Amen? Amen? It's about moving out of our comfort zone. And uh, um, and, and so the call of God, the have-to that was on Jesus, is also the have-to that is on us. Let let me me put it bluntly. Never went, like, I'm usually tactful, but now I'm going to be blunt. Okay, so, look, if Jesus died for it, then to not... Manifest something that Jesus died for, something he shed his blood for, that's got to constitute heresy. It's like Jesus died for the forgiveness of of our sins, right? Uh, And so we've got to manifest and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. To not do that is heresy. And Jesus died to free us from the devil and the principalities and powers and the power of sin. So we've got to proclaim that. We've got to manifest that in our life. To not do that would be heresy. Folks, Jesus died to reconcile the people groups, to tear down the walls, to end the hostility. And so we've got to proclaim that and manifest that with our life. To not do that is heresy. And if what I'm saying right now is true, and it is, uh, that means there's a whole lot of heresy going on. Sorry, of a real bad sort. (laughs) It's like Jesus wasted his blood insofar as we don't do that. It means if we're, sitting, if we're sitting in our comfortable Jerusalem in a homogenous temple and not going up to Syria going around Samaria because it makes us uncomfortable, well, that's heresy because Jesus died for that to happen. We've got to, if Jesus died for the barriers to come down, we've got to manifest what it looks like when the barriers come down. If Jesus died to end the hostility, our job for all of us who are kingdom followers is to manifest a life that's free of hostility. If Jesus died to bring the people groups together, then our job is to bring the people groups together to manifest that truth. In other words, God is saying to us because of the cross, get your butts out of Jerusalem and the homogenous temple and find a place in Samaria. Touch ground in Samaria. You've got to go through Samaria. And what it means, then, is that we've got to, this isn't a suggestion, we've got to, uh, uh, in our life, think of put Samaria on our screen, our radar screen. Uh, when we spend time before church or after church, have Samaria on our mind. How might we meet people that are different than us? And just talk with people that are different from us. Maybe go out to lunch. Maybe, maybe have dinner together. Um, get out of our cultural myopia and begin to see the world from other people's perspective share life experiences with, with one another and, and when you're thinking about where you go to get your hair done and where you go to get coffee and where you like to hang out and where you get your car fixed whatever you do have Samaria on your mind you've got to set foot in Samaria uh, how might you cross paths with people that are different from you uh, staying in a homogenous little temple is not an option we've got to find ways of setting foot in Samaria and, and sharing life experiences and, and developing relationships and, and learning from, from, from other people. Because otherwise, we just learn from our own people, which means we're going, to, we're going to be very narrow. Only then are we really manifesting the truth of the kingdom, restructuring our life to make it a priority, to make this a priority to cross paths with people that are different from ourselves. And even where we live. See, everything's supposed to be submitted to the Father, right? Everything's supposed to be submitted to the Father, which means where we live should be submitted to the Father. Um, Now, the normal of our culture is to say, do I want to live here? Uh, Am I comfortable living here? Can can I afford to live here? If so, done deal. That's normal for the culture. God bless them. It's not normal for the kingdom. We are missionaries. We're missionaries. If you follow Jesus, you're a missionary, and and we're we're supposed to be located where God wants us to be located. We're part of the body of Christ. The finger should always do what my brain's telling it to do. And if I want my finger to go someplace, it's got to go there. If it goes someplace else, it's a very disobedient finger. You see, we're the body of Christ. We're supposed to be where God wants us to be. Um, and, and so we, the only question for us is, Father, is this where you want us to live? Now, This isn't at all an indictment on folks living in mostly homogeneous suburbs, because we need missionaries in mostly homogeneous suburbs. Uh, we need missionaries in the city. We need missionaries in the rural areas. We need missionaries down in the jungle. We need missionaries on the mountaintops. We need missionaries in Siberia. Fine, wherever you're supposed to be, be there, but be there because you're supposed to be there. Be there because that's where you sense God's calling you, not because you want to and it's comfortable and you can afford it. No, 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 don't do that American thing. Do the kingdom thing. Submit it all to the Father. Where do you want me to live? And as we put all the cards on the table, say, Lord, just tell us where to go, have Samaria Samaria as an option. And it could be that some sense a calling to go into an environment that is much more diverse than their present environment. This is what happened to Shelley and I. Uh, we've been sharing life with these three other couples for about 20 years. And we all kind of started talking in the 90s about maybe moving the city sometime. And one night, 12 years ago, uh, out in our backyard, in, in our hot tub, on a wintry night, uh, we were sitting there in a hot tub. We had a pond out there. It was so nice. Kind of miss it. Now that I'm thinking about it. Well, it was just, <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? And, and, uh, and so we're just out there. And all of a sudden, Shelly looks at me with this kind of wry smile. As we're sitting there with our, just enjoying this moment. Stars above. Uh, and she goes, looks at me and she goes, are we supposed to be here? And I said, I really don't think so. A year later, we and these three other couples ended up moving into the city. Now, that's not more virtuous. There's no, it's like, oh, well, how great are you? No, no, it was, it was just, we sensed a calling there. Uh, and, and that's all we're saying is put, put on the table all the action. God, where, where do you want us to live? Now, there is one advantage to living where we're living right now and that is to find a Samaritan woman, you just need to go out your front door. <laughs> you know, Samaritans all around you, and it's a beautiful thing. I will grant that it is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable sometimes when you go outside of your comfort zone, by, by definition. Um, when you're you know, in different environments, and developing relationships with people that have very different cultures than you. Because, see, your normal is now intersecting with their normal, and to the degree that their normal is different from your normal, it's going to feel abnormal. By definition, it's going to feel like weird. Um, and, and it, it can, you know, see, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a kingdom good just doing that. In fact, it's a kingdom necessity doing that because now you're manifesting something of the one new humanity. Now you actually are living out what it looks like when barriers are torn down and hostilities come coming to an end and people are being reconciled. It, 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 but it does feel a little bit, I, I remember the first time I sometimes get my hair cut at this barber shop, and it's an all-black barber shop. In 11 years that I've been getting hair cut there, I've never seen another white person. I'm one white guy. It's a block from my house. Um, and when I first went in there, it was a little disorienting. I was a little bit nervous. I'd never been to a barber shop quite like this. It was really weird. Judge Judy is blurring on the television. Uh, <laughs> see, see up here? It's loud. People are laughing and bantering back and forth, and, and the customers are, the, the, the barbers are. It's as loud as all this hustle and bustle, and, and, and no one's in a hurry. Uh, you know, they, they, sometimes the barbers would take breaks and give each other high fives and talk a little bit, and then they'd go back to it, and the clients didn't care. They just kind of laughed along with it, Take, I'm used to going in and out in 15 minutes, right? Shh, done. Uh, these guys will just play around with their hair for 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and, and at first it was disorienting. It was like, oh, what's going on here? This is odd. No, I, I, I got used to it and I, and I really love it. I mean, you get more, so much more than just a haircut, you get an hour's worth of social entertainment. It, it, it's just a blast. But see, and, and so that, that little act there just get your hair cut in a different place. Um, it, it, manifesting uh, the one new humanity. Yeah, it, the walls have come down. That's a kingdom thing, crossing paths with Samaria. And sometimes as you are intersecting with people of other cultures, developing relationships, learning from them, there'll be things you won't get. You won't get. And don't feel bad about that. You know, we, we all can only stretch so far. As I'm in this barber shop, I'll honestly tell you that about half the time, I'm not quite sure what they're jibing each other about. Uh, they're bantering back and forth And I, I, it's a language thing But it's also inside, I don't know I, I can't quite follow it And, and um, Sometimes Whenever I've tried to participate It's an utter failure it's, a, <laughs> it's going on back and forth And I'll throw it like Oh yeah, Like she wouldn't know anything about that And all of a sudden there's silence And they're looking at it no, no, uh-uh. you, you, I, I don't know if it's the rhythm or the timing or the—I don't know what's wrong with me. But okay, so I, I can still appreciate it, even though that, that's something I just can't join. Maybe in five years I will. Um, it, it's uh, you know, it's it's okay, okay thing. They accept me as I am. In fact, my barber says uh, that I, I, he comments about how I'm the only white customer he's got. He says, but you know what? With that hair, I got you, you got brother blood in your background, that, that's not Irish hair. <laughs> uh. Uh-uh. 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 You belong here. So you look at you. Don't get it? That's fine. But the fact that you're 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 flocking together with birds of a different feather—that's the kingdom of good. That's the kingdom of necessity. Uh, you, you're learning. You can just appreciate that. And so, folks, here's the assignment. Um, I want you to really think about this. To take time this week, and the week after, and the week after that. And in fact, do it till you die, and then you can stop. Uh, think about, pray about, talk about, brainstorm about ways that you can find your way over to Samaria. Um, now, maybe your life is already very diverse, and that's good. But um, wherever you live, even if it's a mostly homogeneous suburb, maybe especially if it's a mostly homogenous suburb, because it's going to take you the most work, to look for ways to diversify your life. And, uh, and, and it, 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 it takes some strategy. It's not going to happen by accident. It can only happen by intentionality. The flow of the culture is so great that we will stay in our homogeneous little zones unless we intentionally go outside of them. And so think about ways, where you shop, where you, you know, get your hair cut, where you get coffee, whatever, ways that you can cross paths with and begin to talk to and learn from and develop relationships with people who look different than you. Um, and that is now manifesting the beauty of the one new humanity that Jesus died for. We've got to go through Samaria. Amen? Amen. I'd like that. Worship team to come up here. We're going to go into another time of worship. I, I, I want to add one little piece here, and that's this. Um, white folks... Don't try to do all of this after the service. Uh, poor people of color are going to get ganged up on. You know I mean, that happened once at Promise Keepers. You know, go find a you know a black friend. Everyone, you know, there's five of them in the auditorium and they're getting drowned by all these white white, white folks. Now, what you do five minutes after the service isn't the important thing. It's what you do tomorrow as you're planning your life and next week and the week after that until you die. That's what's important, and that takes some real intentionality and commitment. Um, we've got to. We've got to manifest. The, all that Jesus died for. We're going into another time of worship. I'd like to call the ushers forward. We'll start by taking up an offering. As we submit everything to the Father, our finances are included, and we just encourage you to uh, give as he leads you, as we should do in all things in our life. It's just been miraculous the way he has uh, worked in people's hearts, and you guys have been faithful uh, meeting the needs of this ministry. It's just been a, a thing of beauty. Um, as we go into this time of worship, I want to say one more thing, and it's this. I mean, worship is about having all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our bodies focused on the one we're singing to and what we're singing about. So I encourage us to get all in. Put out everything else and just worship him because he's worthy of that. The other thing is that sometimes folks, I think, feel an obligation to clap after every song. Um, and it's because our culture says clapping is a way of saying good job, and we don't want the worship teams to feel like they are doing a bad job. So we, we clap for that for, that, for them. Um, we gotta know that this is not a performance. It's not about these guys. We do appreciate them. Let's appreciate them right now. We, thank you guys. You guys are great. We love you. We love you. Okay, so that's all the clapping they need. Um, now, it's, it's okay to clap. It's okay to clap. We, it's very biblical. Clap, raise your hands, all of that. But we do it to the Lord. It's a way of, of it's, it's like shouting. We're expressing joy to the Lord or thanks to the Lord. So clap, but always know that you're clapping for Jesus, not for them, because this is not a performance. Our focus isn't on them. Our focus is to be on, on Jesus. So, Father, as we go into this time of worship, let your spirit flood this place, flood this place, and, and, and pull us into the inner court. Fall on us here right, right now, Lord. And use the, this offering, which is an act of worship, to further your kingdom, to meet the needs of people, to manifest your love towards the poor, the outsider, uh, to, to single mothers that have their kids in our daycare. All these ways, Lord God, expand your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.